Before we jump into this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the audio quality is not the greatest. I recorded this episode and several others uh, during the pandemic while my internet connection wasn't great because of where I was quarantining. However, I, I do hope you'll stick with it. I think the information and the conversation was great, and I uh, think it's worthwhile to listen. I just wanted to let you know before you started listening. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Celeste Headley. She is an award-winning journalist in her 20-year career in public radio. She's been the executive producer of On Second Thought of Georgia Public Radio. She's also anchored National Public Radio's Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, 1A, Weekend Edition. She is very accomplished. She's written a bunch of books. And we're here to talk with her about her most recent book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Now, what I find really interesting, and I'm, first of all, Celeste, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much. I was going to talk to our audience, but I figured I could just talk to you. So I was up, full disclosure, till uh, midnight last night, reading your book and preparing for the podcast. So the irony was not lost on me, right? That like I'm up till midnight, like preparing for this thing and we're doing it. And also you're incredibly accomplished and your accomplishment uh, must have come with, you know, a tremendous amount of work and maybe overwork to be that high achieving. So I'm, I'm super interested in, in having that conversation and, uh, and kind of exploring what works and what doesn't work about this. But it feels like a very, very timely book to write when basically the world has basically stopped and said, you know, we have to do nothing for a little while because, you know, all of the doing has gotten us in a little bit of trouble. So that's, so that's sort of my intro, and I'm really happy you're here. You start the book with this great uh, Bertrand Russell quote, right? It will be said that while a little leisure is pleasant, men would not know how to fill their days if they had only four hours of work out of 24. Insofar as this is true in the modern world, it is a condemnation of our civilization. It would not have been true at any earlier period. There was a form. There was formerly a capacity for lightheartedness and play, which has been to some extent inhibited by the cult of efficiency. The modern man thinks that everything ought to be done for the sake of something else and never for its own sake. And this was not written this year. It was written in 1932. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not the fault of our smartphones. Right. <laughs> right. Alert. The point that you make. That we're, we're, we're all members of this cult of efficiency and we're killing ourselves with productivity. That is correct. Yeah. And I, I the cult is a good one. And one of the things I really tried to do in the book is justify the use of that term. Not just because Bertrand Russell used it, but because we have been brainwashed. And it really does take a, a lot of effort to, you know, give us the red pill, break us out of the matrix and make us see things for how they are. Right. So you build a, a very strong case in your book. You talk historically, you talk, you know, you like, I, I love uh, how you sort of described our path to efficiency, 
In fact, maybe you could just share it briefly. Our path to efficiency and how corporations have basically used, like taken the efficiency and productivity for their profitability versus for our leisure. Right. So, okay. So let me put it this way. Human beings, homo sapiens, our species, lived a certain way and worked a certain way most of the time on our planet, 300,000 years and change. And in the industrial revolution, almost all of that changed. Maybe not immediately, but pretty quick, evolutionarily, very quickly. And so we began our days and our lives uh, by the factory clock. That changed everything. And when you talk about corporations choosing uh, profit over time, basically what happened was we reached a level of productivity where we could produce literally everything that we needed. That That's not science fiction. That is literally true. In a few what, hours of work. We could produce everything we need in a few hours of work. Everything. One sociologist said we could literally work one year and then take the entire next year off. That could be our choice. Right. But corporations, what they did is they realized, okay, so we're making baby carriages, right? In the past, as soon as somebody needed a paper we produced a baby carriage for them, we sold it, and we got our profit off that particular right? We were very task-based. Then we started pumping out baby carriages with, and then looking for the customers. And so there came a moment when uh, productivity was high that they could have given their workers all that time off. They could do the number of baby carriages they need to be a profitable business in, let's say, 10 hours a week. Instead, they were like, hey, what if we keep everyone working 40 hours a week and we just sold marriages? And that's that's what they chose to do. Instead, traded off all of our time for extra money for the corporation, not for the workers, but for the corporation. Although did we did did people also get the benefit of that at a time, meaning if I was only working, if I'm working for $20 an hour and I'm only working for two hours a day and we've accomplished everything we need to accomplish, I only have $40. But if I work for eight hours a day, I've got $160. See, but you're again, not really seeing what's happened. Um, when you've worked or you work, let's say you're working your four hours a day, right? Or two hours a day. You're still making for the company the same amount of money, right? Because you are we have become extremely productive. So you're producing that you need to in order to produce those profits. So let's say that your company makes in profit $10,000 a week, right? Right. right. In, in 1950, maybe that did take you 50 hours a week or, or 40 hours a week to do. Right. Now it takes you 10 hours a week, 12 hours right. a week to make them the so instead, they're having you work the 40 hours. So instead of 10,000, they're making 100,000 a week. But in order to keep you working all that time, they can't you those profits. Right. If they right. gave you all that money, you wouldn't work all those hours. Right, right. So they're giving you, they're, you're, you're still making the same hourly wage and yeah. you're continuing to work for the same amount of time, but your output is creating more profitability for the company. Correct. Right, right. Okay, maybe there was a tipping point in the Industrial Revolution, but it's created an incredible amount of efficiency in our ability to, in, in our productivity. And that efficiency has been leveraged by organizations, keep people working really, really hard, but increase shareholder wealth, in effect. That is correct. 
And you see that all over the the uh, industrialized world, right? Like it's not just the income inequality is insane. It's all over the place. Right. Now, I totally fall into this, right? I mean, into this cult of efficiency. And, um, and here's the problem. This is the essential problem I want to talk about. My drive has helped me to succeed in life. That's my yeah. story. That's my narrative. My narrative is I've worked really hard. I continue to work hard. If I work harder than the next person, I'll have an advantage. That advantage will realize in my success, in my, you know, uh, in, in, in revenue for my company, in, in my personal success, in my achievement orientation, in everything. I'm not saying those things are good. I'm just saying this has been the narrative. If I stop working or I slow down, other hungrier people will work harder, have an edge on me, I will become less relevant, and I will lose my ability to be productive at all because no one's going to be interested. That's the narrative. And I don't think I'm the only one with this narrative. But I also look at your career and I think, would you have been so successful if you didn't work? Like both of us at this point are successful enough that we can say we could slow down. But if we did that 10 years ago, would that really have helped us to be more successful or would it have gotten away of our success? So I'm struggling with all of those questions. Right. So there's a few assumptions which are actually factually incorrect. Okay. So it is factually incorrect that we're makes more money for your company. Um, Sorry, say that again. You went out there. It's factually incorrect. It's incorrect that working all those long hours makes more money for your company. Right. In fact, it's very working long hours loses money for your company. This has been documented after study after study, which is that when you work long hours, you become more urban. That's uh, when you're more likely to be a, a bad manager. Uh, if you're a manager, it means you're going to be less compassionate to your workers. It also means less open to feedback and criticism. It also means you're less creative and innovative. Right. right. So in order to innovate, you have to allow your mind to, to switch analytical thinking into insightful thinking. And that doesn't happen while you're focused on a task. That only happens when you let your mind sort of go slack. Right. <laughs> and the, you're, those long hours you're working are counterproductive. It's even not true when it comes to your earnings. Like they have tracked people's earnings and found that if you work excessive hours, that's than 50 hours a week, you only get like 6% more income. Right. So, so, and, and let me take it even once for the people who take uh, at least 11 days, if not more time are more likely to get promoted. They're more likely to get a higher income pay like that. Those, those long hours we have been brainwashed to think they're, Productive and profitable, but that is absolutely not backed up by the evidence. Um, so when you say we've been brainwashed to think that, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Like, do you do, do, do you mean like my bosses early on said I need you working harder and longer hours? Like what brainwashed me? Yeah, so I realize that's a provocative term, but I after all this research, I, I mean it literally. Yeah. So you can go back in time um, to the era after the World War II. World War II was pretty groundbreaking because all the men, all the able-bodied men, right? And they thought we would have this huge reduction in productivity. It turned out 
we didn't. So that's when we began to realize you could do more with Luke. Right. Um, and actually, the other thing was that a, a man named Edward Bernay, as an immigrant, had worked in uh, counter worked in propaganda for right. during the war, and he realized, hey, I can manipulate workers. The way you write about it, by the way, and the way he wrote about it, it seemed like back then propaganda was not a bad word. It was just like, yeah, I'm I'm chief propagandist. Yeah, it wasn't for him. He right. didn't see it. He was do he was doing propaganda out of a sense of patriotism and national duty, right? right. right. I imagine to the regular public, if he had come out and been on a talk, he'd been on Ellen and what I do. I manipulate you into behaving the way I want you to, or your company wants you to. It'd all be like, uh, boo. (laughs) But for him, you know, that was his job. He was very good at it. And you can actually see, you know, early on, like years ago, I I saw this exhibit, and I think it was at the National Gallery, these posters that were the propaganda posters that corporations put up. And they put them all over their workplaces. And I described a couple of them in the book, but they were You'd see a soldier standing at the ready, saluting and being decorated with a, a medal. When you take vacate, when you take time off, someone else's time on, and they're getting like literally. These were propaganda posters aimed at him to right. quite literally brainwash us. So yes, when I say brainwash, I mean right. And that's where our grandparents and they've passed those values on to the next generation and on to the next, and here we are. Right. Right, that's true, and I and I and there is definitely a family story uh, that I can hear my mother talking about. You know how hard I should work and how good hard uh, how good hard work is. Um, it is it, I am brainwashed then because it's very hard yeah. to say. You know, if I work less hard, it's going to be I'm going to be more effective. And I wonder, like, like when I write an article. For example, yeah. it takes me a while. Like if yeah. I really write it well, I sink into it. That's like going to be four hours for an article, um, at least, you know, of like a uh, thousand words, let's say four to six hours. So I would love to be more efficient about it, but I'm not like it's like that's sort of, you know, I go over it a million times and I re-edit it and I play with words. And so if I'm going to write an article a week, for example, that's already six hours of my day. And if I have a schedule that like you you wrote in the book for yourself, which I really loved, I've got three hours of writing time in the morning and three hours of writing time in the afternoon. Like it's kind of hard to get more than six hours of really thoughtful work. And that may done. be too much anyway. Yeah. And that may be too much anyway. So that's a day of my week. So now I have to choose, let's say I'm going to work four more days, right? Which mm-hmm. is still holding to a five-hour work week. But let's have it work four more days. Then there's a limit to what I can actually do in that amount of time, which requires that I make strategic and intentional choices about what not to do, which, which leads me to the fear of missing out of like, well, someone else has asked me, you know, yet again, I've got, you know, every day I get multiple requests to, yeah. as do you, to be on a podcast, you're on this podcast, right? To be on a podcast, to do this, will you speak at this thing? Will you? And on the one hand, you don't want to miss that opportunity because that might be the opportunity that's the tipping point. On the other hand, you could kill yourself not missing opportunities. Help us out of that conundrum. 
Okay, so a couple things. Um, tried all this out for myself, and I actually became more productive when I implemented Dave. I would not have given that advice in the book if it were not A, scientifically backed up, and I for myself. I'm right. a Buddhist. Buddha says, don't believe anything I say. Go out and test it for yourself literally right. how I live. So right. I can tell you that I have abs absolutely suffered from that fear of missing out right. um, and made myself literally sick trying to do everything that, that I was too good to pass up. Right. Um, so first of all, you will be okay when you pass stuff up. Um, <laughs> the surprise that I found out is a speaking gigs. And I, I think I mentioned this in the book, like as soon as I them down, people just started offering me more money. <laughs> thing. And second of all, when I started turning down podcasts, I found they become very, very flexible about when they would do the interview. Right. I would say, I'm sorry, I'm full up. And they'd say, oh, we'll be next month. And I'd say, okay, well then I'll give you the, it was surprising. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the other thing is, again, when I implemented the, the strategy out in the book, I simply became more productive. I spend hours a day accomplishing nothing. Zip. Yet I am more productive when I actually uh, list out all things done. I am right. more productive now than I was before. And I'm way more chill. I'm happier. I'm more laid back. And I get more done. That's the thing is, is that our habits as they are right now, and this is kind of like the, for me, the take of our habits are counterproductive. We think are like just these task ninjas knocking stuff down, check marking off the list. When in fact, the very things that we think are efficient are not efficient. They are huge wastes of time. Give us some examples. I mean, the prize, the, the big bad guy is always email. Right. Because we really feel like email is more efficient. And when you break that down to evidence, it's just a, such a time. So what do we do? Do we... Do we just delete without responding to emails? Do we, I mean, I know we could time block and we talk about sort of limiting the amount of time you do email. But if you have a lot of emails, you and, and emails are confused with work, meaning sometimes they're not work, but sometimes they are work. You know, a client says, hey, give me a, you know, give me your thoughts on this. That's work. Um, you know, a new. Uh, uh, newsletter from someone is not work but maybe it is, it is not work because maybe you see an article that makes you think something and makes you so so how do you distinguish work from not work you know it's interesting i heard a keynote with elizabeth gilbert and she is all about making sure she's in a frame of mind where she can be creative right, right. that's her thing and she has gotten to the point where she just deletes everything if it's not people emails really flagrantly most of it most of it is completely unnecessary certainly not urgent and i just delete them and i have a a signature on my email that says look i only check my email a couple times a day urgent call me but how urgent is it really um and i've trained the people in my life that if it really is important if they haven't heard from me they call me on the phone because right. they delete it it's not right. i i have other things to do with my headspace right yeah so delete it and and um and so like so a lot of my work is around emotional courage the willingness to feel things and it feels like to 
to make any of this happen, you have to at least, I mean, first of all, it helped, your book is really great because it really, it is science-based. And so on the, on the intellectual side, you could read your book, do nothing and say, okay, I, I, I emotionally, I may not be there, but intellectually I get that I'll be more productive if I spend less time working. Um, but emotionally, you know, an email is going to go in and, and I feel two things. One is someone took the time to write to me. Someone took the time. Maybe that's even just like an appreciation of something that I did, or maybe it's a question or maybe, am I just going to delete it and ignore them? Like it feels kind of offensive. And so I think I have to be willing to feel like I'm, I'm not going to, I remember uh, uh, an interview with Jim Carrey once where he was saying it took him a really long time to realize that it wasn't his job to make his limousine driver laugh. That like, you know, like his, like he just kind of felt like, like, you know, that was his, like he had to make everybody happy and had to make everybody laugh. And at a certain point he was like, okay, I actually don't need to do that. Um, so I think it's like recognizing it might feel offensive to some people, but in the end it's important not not to respond to everything but that's emotionally very very difficult and then the second thing is the fear of missing out which you're saying you probably won't but there's always that question as to whether you might right like so yeah but that's like, again that's kind of a challenge right you're not going to be able to ever do every awesome thing right miss out on some stuff right and that's okay but it means you're able to give the other awesome your full attention which requires um, that you be really thoughtful and strategic yes. about where you want to spend your time and where you don't exactly want to spend. you have to be intentional right now we're sort of treating life like a, a, a bucket of popcorn movies right we're just eating without thinking right. and then you get to the end and you're like where's all the popcorn i ate all of it but i really want people to be intentional and it's because right now we're living in this space um that psychologists call press. we're never fully present ever because we're constantly flicking over to check our to check our email whatever it is that we're focused on we're never all the way there or we're looking at somebody flick over to that we're never completely present with any person or any moment and you will find, for me, the fear of missing out went away because I got into the habit of being present at whatever it was I was doing at that time. Right. So right now I'm doing this podcast. All of my windows are closed. I'm right. looking at nothing except your face and my camera. <laughs> and that's it. But right. I used to absolutely have windows open all the time because I was afraid an email would come or whatever it may be. Right. Um, I, uh, I'd love to get your perspective from your experience and, and you didn't actually write about this so much in the book. So this is a little out of scope, but I'm curious about the, what you have learned, what guidance you can give us about how to make those choices or what to, how to be strategic about what you're going to spend time on, what you're not going to spend time on. So you did talk to us a little bit about technology in the book, but I'm wondering, like, like I, I got an email from some my I, I run a leadership training program. It was just ranked the number one leadership training program in the world by Global Guru. Congratulations! Thank you. What well, what that means is I'm suddenly getting all this like like I've got this couple of groups in Saudi Arabia who are saying we want to represent you in the Middle East now. 
Now, how do I decide if that's something like, like that could be a total distraction or it could be something worth spending time on. My gut is how much time is this going to take? And if I could do it without it taking a lot of time, then maybe I'll do it. I am almost always wrong about that judgment call. I almost always think it's not going to take a lot of time. <laughs> I basically say, use everything on my website. Come to me when you got something. And they say, that's great. Could you just fill out this form? I'm like, no, I'm not going to fill out a form. Well, let's have a conversation so that we can. And suddenly, like, I'm spending more time than I thought on something. Do you have any advice from your own experience about how to make some of those judgment calls? Um, the, I say no all the time. So people reach out to me on LinkedIn and they all say, hey, it looks like we're in the same line of business. And I'd love to have a call to see if there's any synchronicity here. I say that every single time. Right. Um, I get mentee things all the time. I now, if it looks like it possibly might be interesting, I uh, delegate. Right. I don't. I don't. They don't get my time <laughs> right. until some who is disinterested says, "Oh, you know what? I'm going to make an objective call here. Say this is important." So right. I don't know if you have somebody to delegate things to, but that's who those. If you don't, and that may be the case for a lot of people listening then you have to f come up with a checklist in your brain. Maybe it's three that says whether this is worth my time or not. Does it check this mark, this mark, this mark? Thank you for your time. Thanks for your inquiry. Um, here's my website. I have questions, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's right. it. I right. make them meet. Right. They're asking you to meet their bar and put in the effort. Right. Oh, that That's not how that works. Right. That's like a telemarketer calling you and saying, okay, papers and then answer me all these questions. I don't think so. Right. I don't think so. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. I realize like I have a self-concept of being a good guy and I don't want to be obnoxious. Like if people reach out to me, plenty of people helped me when I was sort of less known. And now that I'm well known or more well known, like I don't want to be the person but i guess that's what I, that's like in order to preserve my space to be productive we have to tolerate the feelings that okay not so here's an example here's an example i never negotiate my own price right i have an agent that does that because i don't want to be the jerk right um you didn't reach out to me and say right. hey i want to book you on my behalf I have right. a PR agent and the right. PR agent is there is because if you reach out to me and you have four downloads a month, right. she's going to really kindly say, appreciate your interest, but no, thank you. Right. right? That's the point of that delegation and right. freaking weight in gold. Even if you only have a virtual assistant, right. that for you, it preserves right. you as the nice guy. And right. I get to be preserved in the person because right. I don't have to say you're not important enough. <laughs> Right. Either right. do your podcast. Right. Okay, great. I love it. So so one challenge is, and I just see the time, so we're going to wrap up here. But one quick challenge is, are you able to do this because you're just really good at what you do? And so people want you to speak. And when you say no, they pay you more money because you're really awesome. But I might not be that awesome. And so, so if I say no to someone who wants me to speak, then maybe nobody else will want me to speak. And, or, you know, like, I'm, I'm just curious about, about the, our self-perception and that kind of dynamic. We have terrible self-perception um, in general, human beings. 
very perceptive. We are quite good at determining what other people are good at or bad not good at determining what we're good at or bad at. Um, 70% of people think, more than 75% may think, say that they're above average drivers, right? right. The math doesn't work. Right. So it may be the case that if you turn down a stuff, that's your only chance. In which case I would say, hey, maybe you need to up your game as a speaker. Right. That's the issue. Right. Um, am I just naturally good at this? I doubt it. Not a different kind of training we don't have the time to talk about. Right. But I got to the point where you it, but it's backed by 30 years of, of training. So right. that may be in your particular sense, or maybe that's not, you haven't found your brilliant. And what you're saying is that 30 years of training doesn't have to be, shouldn't be, and won't be helpful if it is 12 hour days. That's right. Right. It is, uh, it's, it's very powerful. You have a tremendous amount of evidence in your book about it. The fact that I still find it hard to believe that if I work harder, it's not gonna help me, just no. tells you how brainwashed I am, like how how challenging this is. And so my my sort of parting message here is, is I think it's like, first of all, read the book because it's a great book and, and a lot of fun to read and you're a good writer. And and second of all, it's, it's very powerful uh, in terms of recognizing it. I, on Saturday, I went uh, shopping for food, which we now do every couple of weeks because of the pandemic, Yeah, um, with my daughter. And it was like one of the very, very few times when I was outside of time, right? And we got in the car and I'm like, okay, it's early in the morning. We're going to go shopping. We're going to go to this grocery store, this farmer's market. And then she was like, well, let's go to this other place. And I'm like, well, that's totally out of the way. And she's like, who cares? And I was like, huh. You're right. It's a beautiful day. The drive will be beautiful. I'm having a ton, tremendous amount of fun with her. And it was like, it was my favorite day in months because I wasn't pressuring myself around time. So it's really like, I think this, this power and importance of saying no to many things and taking the risk of saying no to many things feels really, really important. So thank you. Uh, I'm going to, I'm working on this. I'm a work in progress. I'm working on it, but I'm going to really schedule things where I'm going to say no a lot more and then maybe I'll last months. I would love to. Yeah. And, and I, and I'll, I'd love to check in with you. Although I might be, I won't be insulted if I'm in that category of like, <laughs> no. you know what? Sorry, Peter, but you know, not enough time. Yeah. It'll be fun to check in because I'm going to really do this as an experiment. Yeah, you need to. And I'm happy to find out what the uh, result. Thank you. We've been talking with Celeste Headley. Her very well worth it book is Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Uh, do yourself a favor and get it and spend, choose some of your productive time reading it and then relax and do nothing for a little while. Uh, Celeste, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com 
forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.